0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four,
1: three, two, one, two, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital.
1: Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense.
0: Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this most amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week, those of you watching us on CBSN, listening to us on great radio stations around the country also on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, and of course, our earliest adopters on podcast platforms everywhere. You know we are two things. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological, all points of view on politics and policy, welcome and respected here. This week's conversation is going to be about the topic that I feel very strongly is on the mind's of almost everyone in this country, directly or indirectly. For those directly involved, it's every child, every parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, friend, trying to figure out how we can go to school this fall in a pandemic. How do we do that safely? What are the imperatives? What are the risks? What are the things that we have to do cooperatively to pull this off for the betterment of the next generation of American leaders? That would be our children. So our guest this week in that regard is John King. He is the, was, the 10th Secretary of Education in our great country. He was also Deputy Education Secretary. Uh, Mr. King, great to meet you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for the opportunity to join you. Uh,
0: And I love to stand on formality unless I'm instructed otherwise. Do you want me to call you Mr. Secretary or John?
1: John would be fine.
0: Okay, John. You're also currently President and CEO of the Education Trust, correct?
1: That is exactly right. What's that? So it's a nonprofit that works for education equity on behalf of low-income students and students of color. So we try to close the opportunity gaps that we have in this country.
0: That were there long before the pandemic, but revealed fiercely in its wake.
1: That's exactly right. Exacerbated uh, many of those existing inequities. And
0: what um, are they specifically?
1: Well, For low-income students and students of color, they're less likely to have access to quality early childhood education. Their schools get less resources. They are less likely to have access to the strongest teachers, to advanced coursework, to counselors, and all of that translates into big gaps in achievement for low-income students and students of color and less access to post-secondary education.
0: How has that been exacerbated by the pandemic?
1: Well, immediately when you had schools close, you lost the opportunity to get meals to low income students. We have nearly 30 million kids who rely on schools for meals. So food insecurity was one immediate impact of school closure in the spring. Uh, But we also have big gaps in internet access. So uh, the data suggests about 79% of white families have reliable internet access, about 66% of black families, and about 61% of Latino families. So when school went online, some kids weren't even able to log in. There's also a device gap. Low income students and students of color were less likely to have the devices at home to, to be able to log in. Uh, and low resource districts really struggled to provide their teachers with the support and professional development they needed. Uh, so, unfortunately, we're going to see some of our academic gaps grow as a result of the school closures in the spring.
0: Someone you know well, uh, whose main area of expertise is healthcare, but he had some very strong words on this very program about the from his point of view, the need for children to go back to school, Zeke Emanuel, brother of Rahm Emanuel, and a healthcare researcher and a healthcare policy expert. But he said, look, we can do this, we can figure this out. Now, this conversation was about four, maybe five weeks ago, so I'm not sure that's exactly where he is now, but his general sentiment was, A, this can be figured out, there can be safety precautions taken, And there are real risks to children not returning to school, not only for their education, but for their socialization. In general, do you agree or disagree?
1: Well, I agree about the risks of kids missing school. But I think, unfortunately, because of the disastrous response of the current administration to COVID-19, we're in a position where most of the country, we're going to need to start online or at best with some hybrid learning. Uh, The infection rate is just too high. The community spread is too high. Now it's true, Dr. Manuel is right, it didn't have to be that way. Our international peers handled COVID-19 differently. Uh, They put in place comprehensive systems of testing, contact tracing, help people to quarantine who were sick, and they had general compliance with the best public health signs. And as a result, community spread is down, and they've been able to reopen schools with safety precautions. But in much of our country, we're not in a position to do that.
0: And when you hear the president say, as he often does, infection rates for young children, transmissibility for young children less than 10 years old, they're so resilient, their immune system is so great, that's not a real risk. Your reaction?
1: Well, it is true that there's some evidence that the uh, spread would be lower for young kids. But, uh, Young kids are in school buildings with teachers. They're in homes with family members, some of whom are older and or in vulnerable categories. And so we can't be cavalier and reckless about this. And that's what the current administration has done. They've sort of put out this reckless position. Every school should open everywhere. It'll be fine. And I think that's a very unrealistic Um, assessment of the current state. And it's more about politics than it is about policy and what's best for kids, families, and teachers.
0: So when you think about these risks and you order them in in magnitude, the risk is greatest for teachers and the elderly residents of the children of the homes the children go back home back home to after school if they were to attend in person.
1: The, the, the percentages of risk are higher there, although there's still mixed evidence about young kids and COVID. And there are certainly cases of young kids dying from COVID. Uh, so the risk may be somewhat lower, but there's still very real risk. So you'd want to reopen schools with lots of safety procedures. That will also be expensive. We haven't yet committed the resources to do that work either.
0: I know the answer to this question, but my audience doesn't. What were you in New York when it comes to education as a a member of politics and government?
1: Yeah, I was the state commissioner of education
0: in New York State. Right. The reason I asked you that is to set up this question. I'm sure you had lots of conversations with parents in that role. And I imagine you have a sense right now of the kind of concerns parents have, especially those who need to get back to work or want to get back to work, and the idea of having their children home from public school for some number of weeks or possibly in another semester is really scary to them economically and otherwise. What would you say to them?
1: Yeah. Well, look, I think parents are struggling with this. I have two kids. My kids are 14 and 16. We're worried about in our family, kids being able to go back to school. At the same time, all parents want their kids to be safe and they want to be safe themselves. And we're not in a position, again, because of how we've handled the pandemic as a country to and assure that safety. Um, We also are in a position to do the things in schools that are necessary around personal protective equipment and improving ventilation systems, restructuring transportation and meal delivery within the school day so that students are physically distant, uh, lowering class size so that the students are physically distant. Um, Congress hasn't yet put aside the money that's needed in school districts to do that. So I think when you look at the polling data, it's clear Yes, all of us want kids back in school, but we want them back safely. And parents are worried, as they should be, about whether or not a return to school would be safe.
0: I have heard the Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, say, you know, Congress gave money in earlier variations of stimulus relief, and it hasn't all been spent. So let's not spend any more money until it's all spent.
1: Well, that ignores the very real need. The Council of Chief State School Officers, the Organization of State Superintendents and Commissioners, projects that it will cost between $150 and $250 billion for school to reopen safely. Now, what's happened is there was some money in the CARES Act, about $13.5 billion for schools. Some of that has been spent. Some of it was slow to be distributed. And in many cases, folks are nervous about spending because they are looking down the barrel at potential very significant cuts to education if Congress doesn't do more. So you've really had the whole education sector paralyzed, in a sense, waiting for congressional action on the resources that are
0: needed. That is the voice of John King. He was the 10th Secretary of Education in our great country the last year and a half. Essentially, if you uh, look at the calendar of the Obama administration, Arne Duncan was his successor, uh, his predecessor. rather. More with John King and this topic, this crucially important topic of the future in a pandemic of public education. When we get back, I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of The Takeout, coming up. From CBS
1: News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
0: Welcome back. Uh, As you can see, those of you watching on CBSN, uh, still working from home. uh, And as I've often said, I think almost every week on this program, that's a privilege to be able to do the work I do from home and to those who, for whatever set of reasons... Uh, Whether you're in a hospital, working for a doctor, in a grocery store, doing delivery, if you're a frontline first responder, in any capacity where you need to be out and doing that work, we thank you. Uh, We appreciate you. I am staying at home in almost every way I can to not add to the problem, to be respectful of you and the work you do. I just want to let you know this show thanks you for all the work you do. And I'm also appreciative that the work I do, I can mostly do from home and not get in your way and not make this problem any worse. John King is our special guest, the 10th Secretary of Education. Last year or so of the Obama administration, um, currently president and CEO of the Education Trust. And I want to go back to where we left off at the end of segment one. I have a pretty good sense of what you were saying, Mr. Secretary John, but I want to make sure our audience gets it. So there's been federal money established and sent out, but school districts, to use your word, feel paralyzed because... They don't know what their future costs are going to be, one. Two, they know, they can see at the state level, state budgets are under great stress because of the economic contraction brought about by the pandemic. So they don't know what their future funding stream is going to be. Most of our education is funded at the local and state level. So they're holding this money, if I understand you correctly, and that's why it hasn't all been spent.
1: That that is a large part of the challenge. I would also say that the federal government and state governments haven't always moved as quickly as school districts would like to get the money out to school districts. But uh, we really, to move forward effectively, we need Congress in the next couple of weeks here to uh, dedicate resources that will protect schools from cuts, that will provide additional dollars to make the necessary safety adjustments in school. Uh, and additional dollars to address the learning loss from last spring and some of the socio-emotional impact of school closures from last spring.
0: What does, in your opinion, John, a safe school classroom look like?
1: Well, we have pretty good evidence from our international peers around this. I would say, first, we need society to get the pandemic under control, right? We need infection rates to come way down, Uh, That's a threshold issue. We've got to have testing uh, readily available for not only people who are symptomatic, but people who have been in contact with people who have been symptomatic. So we need large-scale testing access, and we need quick turnaround on testing. There are still states where uh, it can be a week or more, two weeks, before you get your results from the test. That's not acceptable. We need to have immediate turnaround on testing, and we have to have contact tracing so that if someone gets sick at school, their staff who have as their function, tracking down who that person was in contact with, making sure those people quarantine and get tested as well. So we need all of that in place before we even talk about the school design issues. But then when you get to school questions, uh, the best advice we have is that students need to be physically distant, which means we need to bring class size down so that students are uh, at least at six feet apart. Uh, The best advice we have is that Uh, COVID can be spread through the air, and so we need good ventilation systems that that prevent the passage of COVID through um, the airflow within buildings. We've got to make sure that students are wearing masks, that teachers are wearing masks. Where we can, we should add barriers. So in the, you know, Think about the main office where, where people are coming in throughout the day. There ought to be a barrier between the administrative staff and the people who are coming in to lower the likelihood that COVID will be passed. And then we got to redesign uh, arrival, dismissal, got to think about transportation can't have so many kids on a bus, right, Needs to have space between kids on the bus or so different transportation strategy. Uh, Probably can't have a cafeteria meal. Got to have the meals in classrooms where kids are physically distant. So there's a lot of work logistically to make schools safe. Um, But it is possible. Uh, But again, you can't get there until you have all those societal things in place first.
0: Let's just start with one thing. Buses. Now, when my children were young, they walked to school or I drove them to school. But many American children get on a bus. I'm just trying to think through this, and I'm probably missing a lot. But you have to have more buses. You have to have more bus drivers. Because if you have half as many children in each bus than you used to have, you need twice as many buses, which means you need more bus drivers. Not easy to come by. Then you need a flow pattern in and out so the students are not mixing and combining all together as they walk in or as they move around. Am I missing anything?
1: No, I I think that's right. And that's why you have districts either thinking about a hybrid schedule where kids, half the kids would come, uh, you know, on Mondays and Wednesdays, the other half on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And maybe use Friday to clean the buildings or hybrid schedules where you have half the kids come in the morning, half the kids come in the afternoon. Um, But again, even in that hybrid schedule, now you've introduced time where kids are at home and you've got to do learning at home. That means everyone needs a device, everyone needs internet access. We know we have disparities in internet access. So this is a huge logistical challenge for districts. And if you think you're gonna get 10, 15, 20% cuts down the road from the state, uh, it's very hard to wrap your head around how to do those things well.
0: What does the research, the literature tell us about rhythms and patterns for children when it comes to their education? I mean, I just mean doing things the same way day in and day out. Uh, this, whatever it is, is going to be, will not be a pattern, will not be a rhythm. It will be up and down.
1: Look, uh, there's a lot to worry about here. Kids need stability and structure. And the research is very clear about that. And that's particularly true for kids who have challenging situations at home. You know, I was a kid um, where school saved my life. School was the only thing Grew up in Brooklyn. Was in, in Brooklyn, exactly. Went to New York City Public schools. And uh, my mom passed when I was eight, my dad when I was 12. And oh, in wow. between, uh, it was just my dad and me. My dad had undiagnosed Alzheimer's. So home was this place that was unstable, unpredictable, scary a lot of the time. And the thing that saved me was having great New York City public school teachers who made school a place that was nurturing and supportive and consistent. And I, I, I think about the kids who missed that last spring. I think about the kids who this fall either will still be doing distance learning or in these schedules that are disrupted and where they lack that consistent support. And it, my heart breaks. But again, we didn't have to be in this situation. We're in this situation because the current administration, the Trump administration, handled the pandemic disastrously.
0: And when you hear, as I have, the education secretary again, Betsy DeVos, say, look, there are more risks for children being at home than they are at school. Risks of suicide, risks of addiction, risks of abuse. You say what? There
1: are risks, and that's why we should have handled the pandemic better but we're looking at more than 150- oh, we are 000. where we are now. That's right. We've, we've lost more than 150,000 Americans. Um, there are kids who are getting sick. If you look at Florida today, uh, there are large numbers of kids who are sick with COVID. There are kids who have died from COVID. Um, of course, we want kids in school, but we want them to be safe. We want, and we want their families and their teachers to be safe. A large number of kids live in homes uh, with adults who are in vulnerable categories. Uh, so we've really, we really, we can't be cavalier about this. We've really got to weigh the, the, the risks on both sides.
0: And would you imagine that it would be necessary in a classroom? Again, I'm trying to imagine what the classroom looks like. Masks on students, masks on the teacher. Do we need to have a plexiglass thing around each desk?
1: And it's probably not feasible to do, but I think, you know, that the, the goal is to really make it possible to minimize the degree to which students are breathing in um, potential COVID from other classmates and the degree to which the teacher is breathing that in. Masks get us a good way there. If we get the infection rates way down, uh, we I think we could operate that way. And there may be places in the country that, where the infection rate is low enough that they could operate with masks and with physical distancing without you know, everyone in a, in a plexiglass bubble. Um, but we've got to get the infection rate down. And, and in many places in the country, we're headed in the wrong direction
0: life in a bubble education and otherwise that is the voice of john king our special guest he was the 10th secretary of education in our great country more with our special guest john king on the other side of this break i am major garrett this is the takeout
1: from cbs news this is the takeout
0: with major garrett welcome back john king is our special guest uh, for those who uh, keep a roster handy of uh, famous Obama administration secretaries, Arnie Duncan would probably be a little higher in the memory than John King. But Arnie Duncan uh, was there for almost, I think, seven years, right, John? That's right. And you were his deputy for how long? I was his deputy
1: for the year before he left.
0: Got it. And when you think about it, when our audience thinks about the federal government's role in education, it is much discussed, but it is... Not ancillary, but it is fractionally less important than the state and local role in terms of policy and money. True?
1: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, if you look at funding, about 90% of the funds for schools come from the state and local level, only 10% from the federal government. The federal government's role is really to provide additional funding directed towards low-income students, students with disabilities, English learners, and to protect students' civil rights. Those are the core K-12 functions. The, the The department also is responsible for higher ed and uh, overseeing student loans and the Pell Grant program so low-income students can go to college.
0: So we've talked a lot about K-12. What are your thoughts about colleges and universities? I had a conversation probably more than two and a half months ago. It was a very bullish conversation with Mitch Daniels, uh, the president of Purdue University, which made it clear probably earlier than any other large institution of higher education, that they were coming back full force in the fall and all these things could be figured out. I'm not sure where Purdue is on that continuum, but lots of universities and small colleges are struggling with this. What are your thoughts about higher education and COVID?
1: Yeah, well, they face the same challenge, right? They, they, they don't exist in a bubble. They interact with society. And so we've got to get the infection rates down in the country in order for colleges to be able to operate successfully. They've got a lot of safety issues to work out, including dorms. Uh, Dorms are, in a sense, a a stationary cruise ship, right? Right. Uh, And so you've really got to do work to figure out how are you going to help students stay isolated? Cafeterias, how are you going to make sure that students are able to stay physically distant uh, when they're getting their meals? Uh, You've got to think about ventilation in classrooms and classroom settings. Are they big enough so that students can be spread out? Uh, a lot of institutions have many faculty members who are in vulnerable categories. they have got to think about that. Um, so I think you're going to see at the higher ed level, a lot of folks going online, uh, some folks trying to do some hybrid model uh, where maybe students are on campus, but they are uh, learning online rather than going into the classroom. We've got to remember, we have a lot of adult students. 20% or more of our students are parents. So it's, it's very it, it, sometimes we have this conversation as though we're only talking about sort of liberal arts colleges in on a leafy campus where everybody right. lives on campus. That's not what college is. 75% of college students are in public higher ed institutions, a lot of community college students, a lot of students who are going to regional public universities. They're also working. Uh, they're living at home, again, with family members who may be in vulnerable populations, a lot of older students. Uh who themselves may be in vulnerable populations, so this is a this is for colleges a very challenging question, and they too are concerned about resources. Public higher ed is very vulnerable to state cuts
0: oh, absolutely, and it's also vulnerable to a smaller population of students because unlike public schools where there are there are regular allocations, part of their budget model is built on students attending in some cases. And some universities, a larger percentage, are foreign students who pay a very high rate for that education. So let me just ask you this. Should the price point of online higher education be the same as in-person?
1: Well, it depends if the quality is the same, right? And I think there are some... You know
0: that's one of the hardest questions that's being dealt with right that's now. Right.
1: That's Many right.
0: students are furious about the idea of paying the same rack rate for online education at the higher education level than they would for being on campus.
1: That's right. And so, you know, there are some universities, you think about uh, Southern New Hampshire University, uh, Arizona State University, where they have a long history of providing Mm -hmm. online courses, a high degree of quality. And the courses were planned to be online. Right. Uh, They planned out projects that could be done online. They planned out how to use technology in the teaching.
0: And students came into that system knowing that, seeking it, and embracing it. It's that's different. It's different when that is a change midstream.
1: Exactly. When you have someone who just says, well, I'm just going to teach my regular class, but I'm going to do it on Zoom and hope it works. You know, that, that's not going to provide the quality learning experience that students want. And I think you are going to see students demanding changes to tuition if they're not getting a quality learning experience.
0: Philosophically, can you give us your opinion on that?
1: Well, again, if the class is as good, if the class is designed to be delivered online then yeah the the tui- you could see why the tuition would stay the same but if the class is not strong and students are not engaged then of course if i was a student certainly i'm a, my my older daughter is a senior in high school so i'll be a, a paying uh tuition payer in in short order uh, i'd be very frustrated if i was paying the same tuition for lower
0: quality okay, so. Accompany me on this journey. We've gone from the philosophical to the practical. Who gets to decide whether it's good enough?
1: Well, I think at the end of the day, colleges will set their tuition rate, but they're going to get pressure from their students and uh,
0: people will walk right. with their feet. We'll, we'll vote right. with their feet. That's They'll right. vote with their feet. And, and
1: folks, and I am, I, I am starting to see that folks who are choosing and saying, "Look, if I'm going to be online, I'm not going to pay the same amount. I'm going to go to my local community college instead," and that, that's that's uh, understandable.
0: Is it something approaching an exercise in insanity to continue to think about full-scale collegiate athletics this fall?
1: It's hard to imagine. Now, there may be places where they can put extraordinary resources towards it the way uh, you know, Major League Baseball and the NBA are. Uh, But the idea that we're going to have a regular college sports season, yes, that's crazy. When you look at the data on the rate of community spread, and you look at the campuses that already are having students who are sick just from their sort of preseason practice.
0: Right. My alma mater, the University of Missouri, is a member of the Southeastern Conference. And the Southeastern Conference, you might be aware of this, derives a, a fraction of its revenue from college football. It's occasionally yeah, on television. Every now and again, maybe maybe on a network known as CBS. Um, they're still holding on to a ten game schedule, a conference schedule, starting in late September. And it feels like, to your point about this infrastructure that you would need to sustain that, that has to pull resources away from other parts of our society that need them as much, if not more.
1: I think I think that's right. I mean, th- here's the challenge: we're in this situation because of bad decisions that were made by the current administration early in this pandemic, and we haven't changed strategy. We still don't have testing. We still don't have contact tracing. We still don't have a national strategy in response to COVID. Our international peers, not only have they reopened schools in many cases, in many cases they are playing sports again, but they got the pandemic under control, and this administration has failed in that task.
0: We've got a minute before we go to break, and I know if someone from the administration were a part of this conversation, and I don't speak for them, but I've heard them say this enough, hey, we're testing more than any country on the planet Earth, and we've, our testing capacity has grown demonstrably week in and week out. Don't say that we don't have a testing program. We do. That's what they Their would say. Their testing program is inadequate
1: to the need. What you need to be able to do is have immediate testing for people who are symptomatic and you need to be able
0: to You mean immediate results or yeah, very close yeah. to and then you need results.
1: immediate results and then you need to be able to do the contact tracing to figure out all the people they've been interacting with and get those people tested as well. We're very far from that. And I'll tell you, before the change of administration, the Trump administration cabinet and the Obama administration cabinet, we met jointly to, to prepare for natural disasters, other kinds of crises. We talked specifically about a pandemic and the steps that were necessary and the importance of moving quickly to address things like testing and personal protective equipment. They just didn't follow the blueprint and they chose to wait too long. They chose to deny the existence of the disease, to pretend like it would just disappear. That's how we ended up here and schools are now bearing the brunt.
0: John King is our special guest, the 10th Secretary of Education, currently President and CEO of the Education Trust. Back in just a second. This episode of The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Stakes. Visit KansasCityStakes.com today.
1: CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
0: Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett. John King, the 10th Secretary of Education, is our special guest. Uh, John, I want to pick up where you just left off, because I think it's important. Uh, Transitions are important in American government. Uh, The Trump administration transition, for a lot of reasons, some of which I outline in my book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, was uneven to say the best, to say at at its best, most charitable, because of decisions people inside that transition made. People got thrown out of that transition process. It was very, very uneven. But the meetings nevertheless occurred between the outgoing administration and the incoming administration. Give us more context and specificity about this conversation with the incoming Trump administration about a pandemic.
1: Yeah. Well, the the idea was, and this was something that the Bush administration did with the incoming Obama administration
0: and president. An aggressive effort to do.
1: That's right. That's right. Because Continuity of government is important, and you want to make sure the incoming administration is prepared to deal with any eventuality. And President Obama was very clear from the very from the day after the election uh, that we were going to make sure to have a, as smooth a transition as possible. And uh, we began preparing for that even before the election. And then once the election happened, our our task was to have a very smooth transition. Unfortunately, the Trump administration was slow to assemble their transition teams. They were slow to get people to the agencies. Now, this meeting of this joint cabinet meeting happened just a few days before the inauguration. And the idea was at that point to make sure that uh, cabinet members were briefing each other on how to deal with these potential crises and what some of the issues are that would come up. We covered a wide range of subjects. It was multiple hours. We were sitting in pairs, each with our uh, cabinet counterpart. And one of the topics of discussion was how do you deal with the pandemic and what implications would a pandemic have for every agency. And you know, during that time, Secretary DeVos and I talked about how we dealt with Ebola and, and H1N1 and some of the implications for schools of a pandemic. Uh, but the idea was that they would be ready to put those plans into action if they were faced with these kinds of disasters. And in fact, the discussion was about a respiratory illness that that was a pandemic that started overseas and how you prepare for that. And we talked about the urgency of getting personal protective equipment, the urgency of getting testing in place, the need to have clear science-based communication with the public. um, And they just didn't do those things.
0: Any sense? Why?
1: It's hard to get inside of uh, the the heads of the current administration. I will observe that a large share of the people who are in that meeting are no longer in the administration. Right. Um, But you
0: can also get a sense in a meeting like that of whether or not people are interested or following or devoted to that particular task.
1: Look, it didn't it didn't feel then like there was a ton of urgency in the room about these issues. Uh, But this, look, ultimately, the the president is responsible for this. And uh, uh, the current president set a tone from the very beginning that was dismissive of the pandemic. I mean, you you know, he said, oh, this is just going to go away. There are very few cases. It's all under control and missed a crucial period of time to get in place the structures necessary for personal protective equipment, for ventilators, for The testing and contact tracing system we need. But the the tragedy is, even after those mistakes and seeing the cost in human lives, they still aren't addressing those fundamental issues. We are still behind virtually all of our international peers in dealing with this pandemic.
0: One of the things that the president has said he hasn't said it much lately, but there was a couple of week period, about mm, three, one, three weeks ago, where he said, you know, if school districts don't reopen, I'm going to withhold funding from them, or alternatively, if children and parents want to go to another school, let's say it's a charter school or a private school, I will let the money from the federal government follow them. Is there any legal basis that the White House or this administration could do either of those things?
1: Under. Current law, no. I mean, that was just empty bluster. I think the question now is, as Congress considers setting aside additional money for schools, there are some in Congress who want to tie that money to forcing schools recklessly to reopen. Uh, But I'm quite confident that uh, certainly the House of Representatives will prevent that from
0: happening. We'll never go for that.
1: No, I, I can't. I can't imagine that scenario because it's it's so obviously. Reckless and against the public good.
0: And to be clear, under federal law, no administration, not this one or one that comes after that, can deny or trace federal dollars to a student that goes to a different place.
1: Not, not as connected to COVID reopening, right? Right. Now, now what, one of the things that Secretary DeVos has tried to do is to steer some of the CARES Act dollars to private schools. And uh, there's been a lot of pushback on that. There's going to be litigation on that. Um, But as a general matter, the federal government isn't the one that's going to decide whether or not schools reopen. That's going to be a decision made by uh, local and state officials.
0: So people can get a sense of your perspective on this. Charter schools, good, bad, mixed, depends?
1: Um, Mixed, depends. I mean, there are some charters around the country that are doing an excellent job. Uh, There are some states that have very careful oversight of their charter sector, like a Massachusetts, like a New York, uh, where there's a willingness to close low-performing schools, a high bar to get a charter, uh, careful oversight of academic and uh, financial performance. And then there are states like Michigan that have a charter law that's terrible, where you've got lots of for-profit charters who are getting terrible academic outcomes without any accountability. Uh, so unfortunately, charter means different, very different things, state to state. In some places, they've been a positive force in public education. In other states, uh, unfortunately, their charter sectors are very poor.
0: Fan of homeschooling or a skeptic?
1: Um, you know, I, I believe in public schools as the foundation of our democracy. You know, every family has to do what's right for them. But my own view, as certainly as a parent and an educator, is that Uh, We're best served by having kids in public schools that prepare them to live in a diverse world with diverse people and to engage with their peers and and ready to participate in civic life.
0: And yet, we're kind of in a more homeschool environment right now.
1: Indeed, we are. And uh, unfortunately, with, with real equity disparities, as we talked about, right? some folks who can get on the internet, some folks who have devices, others who don't. Some folks who have, the, as you said, the privilege to be able to work from home and support their kids. But only about one in five African-Americans in the workforce to work from home. Only about one in six Latinos in the workforce can work from home. So there are a lot of kids who are either on their own or maybe they're they're with an older sibling or another family member. Um, This is a really challenging period. Again, it didn't have to be this way. This is where we are.
0: That's the voice of John King. This whole conversation has been about something that is as topical as any issue in our country. Household to household. Nothing, I think, is more topical than the pandemic and most re- related to that right behind it. How do we educate our children? Higher education, K through 12. John, it's been a pleasure for our radio audience. We have to say farewell. But for those on podcast platforms and CBSN, make sure you stick around for the Takeout Outtake especially. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. John King is our special guest. He was the 10th Secretary of Education and preceded by Arne Duncan in the Obama administration and succeeded by Betsy DeVos in the Trump administration. John, this is the fun and games. It's slightly less intense on the policy side portion of our conversation. And I want to ask you a little bit about something you said during the main show, which is If I remember correctly, your mother passed when you were eight and your father when you were 12. Yeah. That's a lot. Uh, Can you give my audience a sense of the difficulties, the challenges, the heart life you led in those years?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to describe. I mean, you know, my mother was the sort of center of my world, and uh, she had a heart attack. It was October of my fourth grade year. Um, My father was much older. He, as as I mentioned, had Alzheimer's. And so over the time, from when I was eight to when I was 12, his condition diminished a lot. No one knew, just the two of us. And I didn't know why he acted the way he did. But home was was, uh, just crazy from one night to the next. I can recall one night, my father woke me up two in the morning, told me it was time to go to school. I remember being on the staircase in our house, holding on to the, to the banister as my father pulled me on the stairs. And, he, and I kept saying, Daddy, it's not time to go to school. It's the middle of the night. And he was pulling me. I just didn't understand why he was doing that. And every day was like that. Um, as he got more and more sick, I had to figure out how to get food in the house, how to just keep our household going. And it was just incredibly lonely. And the thing, as I said, that saved me was that I had these great teachers. I had a teacher who looped with us in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, Alan Osterweil, I'm still in touch with him, amazing teacher. And I remember the stuff we did in his class like it was yesterday. We read the New York Times every day. We did productions of Midsummer Night's Dream and Alice in Wonderland. We went to the museum and the ballet. And and that gave me a chance to have a sense of hope and optimism. Uh, When my father passed when I was 12, and then moved around different family members, different schools. Like many young people who have trauma like that, I was a very angry teenager. I actually got kicked out of high school. I was telling people I'm the first U.S. Secretary of Education I've been kicked out of high school.
0: Um, <laughs> a badge of honor in a certain way. <laughs> but, but
1: I, and, and I hope I'm not the last, right? Because part right, of right. what my story is, is is one of second chances, where people were willing to see me as more than the sum of my mistakes. And were willing to give me a second chance even after I got kicked out of high school. And mentors and teachers and a school counselor helped me get my life back on track. And so, you know, I became a teacher and, and a principal to try to do for other kids what educators did for me my whole life.
0: Wow. Um, I can only imagine what that period of time was between 8 and 12 and um, how, how scary it must have been. Because uh, you, you, uh, my mother uh, passed away in 2014 um, of a of a disease similar to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's uh, vascular brain disorder is essentially what it was. But mental diminishment is something that you have to deal with in either one of those three cases. Um, Dealing with that as an adult is far different than dealing with it as a child. And when you're an adult and when you're like me and you're in a world where there's a lot of information at your fingertips and a lot of people you can call and associate with who can provide some backup to you intellectually and spiritually, you have some resources. It's still difficult. It's really hard. That's right. I can't imagine what, what 9, 10, and 11, you didn't even know what you were dealing with. No, I didn't understand
1: it. I mean, some days my father would yell and yell, and I didn't know why. And some days he's so sad, and he wouldn't even talk. I, and I just didn't know what, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't have, but I just tried to just go on, and it was school. I was thinking about the next day at school that gave me a reason to go on. Um, and, you know, I was I was very fortunate that teachers, they didn't give up on me. They didn't say to themselves, oh, well, here's a black Latino male student, family in crisis, what chance does he have? Um, but instead they, they tried to make school a place where I could be a kid and I couldn't be a kid at
0: home. That's great. Uh, so the three threshold questions for all of our guests, I will get, pose them to you now, take them in whichever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life? Uh, All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? And if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what artist or genre are you most likely to listen to?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, All right. Um, hmm. Most impactful book was probably uh, this book, Down These Mean Streets, by P.D. Thomas, uh, who was... Dark skinned Puerto Rican and so in New York. And so I just it was the first book where I really could fully relate to the to the character. Uh favorite movie. Uh this is gonna be sort sort of corny, but it's probably when Harry met Sally. <laughs> Very good yeah yeah I'm, I'm almost a little ashamed to say that but I. Really, uh, that's good it's, it's a good one sweet. it's a great it's a, very, movie. It's, a very, it's a very it's a very sweet movie uh and music huh uh you know i have broad interests hip-hop r&b uh but in our house we've listened to a lot of the hamilton soundtrack mm-hmm. as sure. well as the uh the uh, hamilton remix which which is sort of like a hip hop r and b version of of Hamilton with uh, popular artists doing the song so.
0: and as a, as an edu- edu- as an educator, uh what does the phenomenon around Hamilton tell you about the possibilities of this kind of civics music and a particular genre of hip hop
1: yeah, we well, you know I was a high school social studies teacher, so I love it. What it shows me is that kids can get really interested in history and understanding how our country came to be the way it is, if we make it accessible and engaging. And Emmanuel Miranda is a genius, an artistic genius. And when you uh, listen to the songs, his ability to weave uh, this pretty dense history book, uh, the Mm -hmm. turnout book into uh, rap songs is incredible. And, you know, the the Gilder Lehrman Institute has a whole project working with kids to expose them to Hamilton and and they have a whole pr- process where kids make their own kind of history rap songs and kids are super into it. And they're p- super passionate about history and social studies. And uh, hopefully every social studies classroom can have that spirit.
0: And uh, don't think uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was the first to do this. Go back to the early rap artists, Tupac, others, there's tax policy. There's government policy in those yes, lyrics. Yes, you can yes, find it. It's right yes, straight up there. That,
1: that's right. That's right. They're, teaching you, that's right. That's <laughs> They're right. teaching you lessons. That's
0: right. They're teaching you lessons right out of the bat. That's so, not
1: right.
0: John, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and uh, we will keep in touch on this issue because it's not going away. And I wish you the, you and your family the best.
1: Thanks. Same. Really enjoyed talking to us.
0: Thanks so much, John. Uh, we'll see you next week, folks.